By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Behind the Bonds, Connecting the Dots on Corporate Credit. I'm Tanya Hall, your host for this edition, coming to you from lovely London. Now, I'm nursing the end of a rather nasty cold, which is fitting because today we're talking about healthcare and pharmaceuticals, and in particular, the health of the companies we rate. Now, healthcare is what investors call a defensive sector. These are industries which typically hold up pretty well in downturns. But is that still the case? Well, later in the podcast, my colleague Victoria Knight in London will be talking to analysts in Europe about developments they're watching in the region this year. They'll be discussing the prospects for a wide range of subsectors, including laboratories, medical device manufacturers, and healthcare facilities. But first, we're heading across the pond. My New York based colleague Yvette Cantro will be talking with analysts there about rising defaults among US healthcare companies and the prospects for the big branded pharmaceutical companies. Yvette, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tanya. As you noted, healthcare has long been considered a defensive sector. Investors expect it to perform well, no matter what else is going on in the rest of the economy. After all, most people will continue to fill prescriptions or go to the doctor or go to the hospital, whether there is a recession or not, or so the conventional wisdom holds. But more recently, this conventional wisdom has come into question. Labor shortages, ongoing efforts by governments and private insurers to reduce their costs, new laws and regulations, these have all buffeted the healthcare sector over the last year or so. That is leading to rising credit stress and rising defaults among U.S. healthcare companies. In a little while, we're going to hear more about that from Jean-Yves Copan, a vice president in our New York office. But first, I'm joined by Ola Hanoon Costa, who heads up our healthcare coverage in New York. Ola is going to talk about a very different corner of healthcare, branded pharmaceuticals, and how it is faring in our current environment. Welcome to the podcast, Ola. Thanks, Yvette. Happy to be here. So, Ola, your team is predicting continued solid growth for the pharmaceuticals industry, especially for big, highly rated brand name drug makers. But there are some potential speed bumps along the way. Tell us about those. Sure. First, the patents on some of the industry's biggest drugs are expiring, which will allow generic companies to sell their versions of these drugs for a lot less money. The prime example right now is Humira, AbbVie's blockbuster arthritis drug. Just last month, a cheaper copycat version of Humira, what the industry calls a biosimilar, was launched here in the U.S., it will become a real watershed for the industry. A watershed. So how so? Well, part of it, it's, it's sheer, sheer size. Humera has more than $18 billion in U.S. sales, so it's huge. But it's also noteworthy because Humera is the first self-administered biotechnology drug to face biosimilar competition in the U.S. Okay, um, that's a mouthful. Can you translate for us? Of course. For biotech drugs, self-administered just means that patients pick up their prescription at their pharmacies and then inject themselves with the drugs at home. So self-injected. That differs from provider-administered 
drugs, which are injected by a doctor or other care providers. You cannot do it yourself. So why does that distinction matter? Well, it's all about reimbursement. For most U.S. insurance plans, including Medicare, self-administered drugs are covered under pharmacy benefit plans, not medical plans. Therefore, big pharmacy benefits managers, or what we call PBMs, will have a lot of influence over whether or not patients and physicians stick with Humira or switch to a cheaper copycat. We haven't seen this with a biosimilar before. Humira is going to give us our first look at what the U.S. market for self-administered biosimilars is going to look like. So there's a lot of interest. I see. So moving on from patents, what's another potential headwind for big pharma right now? The U.S. Inflation Reduction Act for sure. Drug pricing provisions in this new law will, among other things, allow Medicare to negotiate the prices of certain drugs. The government estimates that this will save more than $100 billion over 10 years, with the industry bearing the brunt of the cost. But it's going to be a few years before these pricing rules take effect, so the impact won't be really felt for a while. Got it. Before you go, let's talk about weight loss drugs. They seem to be generating a lot of excitement lately, not just for drug companies, but for consumers as well. They are for sure. Right now, all eyes are on Eli Lilly's Monjaro. It was already approved for type 2 diabetes last year, but it's also proving to be very effective in clinical trials for weight loss. Some people are losing almost 23% of their body weight after 72 weeks. We expect the FDA to approve Monjaro, potentially branded with a different drug name, for weight loss by the end of the year. The opportunity is huge, considering that obesity affects over 650 million people worldwide, including over 100 million in the U.S. Another big weight loss drug is Nova Nordseg Wigovi, which won FDA approval last year. Like Monjaro, it was previously approved to treat type 2 diabetes under different dosing. And like Monjaro, it is effective when it comes to weight loss. Okay, so is there a catch? Well, for all these drugs, it's reimbursement, of course. Right now, Medicare does not reimburse for obesity drugs, but we believe that will eventually change. Payers increasingly view obesity as fueling high blood pressure, heart failure, high cholesterol, and other medical conditions that contribute to rising healthcare costs. And so reducing healthcare costs is a priority for everybody right now. Indeed. Well, thanks for those insights, Ola. We're going to pick up on that theme a bit with Jean-Yves Copan, who covers healthcare in New York. He is joining us now to talk about rising credit stress in healthcare. Welcome to the podcast, Jean-Yves. Thanks, Yvette. So, you recently observed that healthcare now represents about 16% of our U.S. B3 negative list. So, that's our list of companies that fit our proprietary description of credit stress. That's up for less than 4% in 2015. What is driving that increase and what does it tell us? Well, it's a good indicator of a lot of the challenges that healthcare companies are contending with right now. Like you and Ola discussed, there is ongoing pressure by public and private payers to reduce healthcare costs. There's also increasing social risk, new legislation, litigation over things like opioids, and of course another major contributor is private equity. Private equity, how so? Well, close to 90% of the healthcare companies on the B3 negative list are owned by private equity. 
Over the past decade, private equity acquired dozens of smaller healthcare companies and rolled them up into larger organizations. We saw that in different areas, physician practices, emergency medicine, anesthesiology, urgent care, to name just a few. In most cases, what we observed is that private equity firms took on a lot of debt to fund their acquisitions, sometimes taking advantage of the prevailing low interest rates. But as interest rates rise and the debt is getting more expensive to service, that fact coupled with slowing economy growth is making it more difficult for these companies to adapt to the challenges facing healthcare right now. Can you give us an example? Sure. Take labor costs. While labor costs have risen in most industries, healthcare has been particularly hard hit. This has been especially problematic for healthcare staffing companies. Or new legislation. The No Surprises Act, which bans so-called surprise medical bills, has been extremely negative for air ambulance providers. And of course, the pandemic. For some highly leveraged healthcare companies, the disruption caused by COVID-19 was the last straw that pushed them into a default. Okay, so let's talk about defaults a bit. You believe they're going to increase, is that right? Yes. More than a dozen U.S. healthcare companies have defaulted since the beginning of 2020, and there will be more. Some of the companies on the B3 negative list are going to find that their capital structures are simply not sustainable, given how quickly their financing costs are rising. And as credit conditions worsen, refinancing their debt will become increasingly hard. What do you mean by that? Only a small amount of those companies' debt will come due or mature this year. But maturity is dramatically increasing in 2024 and 2025. Some companies will try to preemptively deal with that by entering into distress exchanges this year. Distressed exchanges, which are similar to out-of-court restructuring, have always been popular with private equity firms when the companies they own are grappling with financial stress. And we believe that this is going to continue. Well, thanks for that, Jean-Yves. We will definitely be on the lookout for more healthcare distress exchanges and defaults this year. Now, I'm going to hand the mic over to my colleague in London, Victoria Knight, who's going to talk a little bit about healthcare in Europe. Victoria? Thanks, Yvette. Obstacles and opportunities are banned for healthcare companies in the US this year, but what does 2023 hold in store for their European counterparts? Today I'm joined by two Moody's analysts with their fingers firmly on the pulse. Frederick Duransen from our London office and Marie Fischer-Sabatier, who's based in Paris. Frederick and Marie, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Victoria. Thanks for having me. Firstly, Frederick, if I can start with you, how is the current economic situation in Europe shaping the sector's prospects? This year, we expect demand growth to continue because slow economic growth and higher inflation don't really influence demand for pharmaceutical products and healthcare in, in Europe. One of the main reasons is that in the region, governments tend to pay for healthcare and, and reimbursement levels are high. But there are still segments that are vulnerable given the weaker economic environment. Okay, um, can you give us an example? Sure. Um, so, some medical device manufacturers, for example, are in this group. We do expect demand to keep growing for the sector as a whole, but segments with lower reimbursement levels and more expensive items like hearing aids uh, could be squeezed. Now, governments typically don't pay for products like contact lenses, but they're also cheaper, so people will continue to buy them. 
and then hospital or imaging equipment are so expensive that governments may hold off buying them. Having said that, companies which make these products have multi-year service contracts, and so that gives them a steady stream of revenue. Interesting. Marie, are pharmaceutical companies also feeling the squeeze? Yes, but only really speculative-grade pharmaceutical companies that operate in segments where governments don't reimburse or don't reimburse much. These segments are indeed exposed to weaker consumer purchasing power, and this includes areas like consumer health, women's health and aesthetics, such as dermocosmetics. So I'm guessing by the latter you mean Botox, right? Right. <laughs> Great. Okay, so sticking with pharma, if, if we can, Marie, what else is on the horizon? Well, we expect investment-grade European pharma companies to make more acquisitions this year. While not many drugs are coming off patent this year and next, it will pick up in the second half of this decade, and that could prompt M&A. Of course, it will also depend on the quality of companies' drug pipelines and how successful new drug launches are. One thing to note is that big pharma companies also have lots of cash, and most of them generate substantial free cash flow. So they can go out and make acquisitions if they want to. Another element is the US Inflation Reduction Act, which is something we are watching here too, and which could also prompt M&A. Okay, and what about um, M&A elsewhere? What can investors expect? With higher interest rates, financing acquisitions is going to be more expensive for speculative-grade pharma companies. The same is true for laboratories, as well as clinics and nursing homes. Laboratories will also be busy integrating the companies they bought in the past couple of years, when they have been quite active at M&A. And clinics and nursing homes have a lot of that already. So it sounds like the picture is pretty mixed on the M&A front. Changing tack now slightly, Frederick, can we talk a bit about cost pressures? Inflation is a huge problem in Europe. Which segments are the most vulnerable to its effects? As you can imagine, people are a big cost for labour-intensive segments, like clinics or nursing homes. So rising wage costs are a major issue for them. And then they also face staffing shortages because of high turnover, especially among nurses and caregivers. And it's hard to attract new people. That will remain a problem this year. And so it's not just about increasing wages, but also improving the working conditions to attract and keep staff. In the meantime, their margins are being squeezed because of the time lag between the rising costs and when companies are actually able to pass on those costs by raising their tariffs or prices. And what about companies that offer outsourcing services within the pharmaceutical industry? Here I'm thinking of contract development and manufacturing organisations, or CDMOs for short. How are they likely to do? Well, cost inflation, especially for energy and raw materials, will test CDMO's pricing power this year, yet again. And the companies that will be better able to pass these costs on are the ones that are focused on highly complex products like injectable medicines or simply those that have larger market shares. And for CDMOs, rising interest rates will make already weak cash flow worse and that could hurt their credit quality because they are private equity owned and they already have a lot of debt that they need to service. Interesting. So finally, we're almost three years into the pandemic now. Marie, can you tell us a bit about what's on the radar for labs? Sure. There have actually been recent developments in this segment. 
Earlier this month, SINLAB, the largest clinical laboratory in Europe, issued a profit warning for 2023 because COVID-19 testing revenue has slumped. Testing volumes and prices have fallen in some of its key markets like France. Now, of course, we expected revenue from COVID-19 testing to decline in the wake of the pandemic, but it has fallen much more than we thought. And this is combined with higher operating costs and tariff cuts, so we expect this will weaken the credit quality of the laboratories we rate. Marie, Frederick, thank you so much for those insights. It looks like 2023 is going to be chock full of developments for investors to watch in the European healthcare sector. And now I'm going to hand the mic back to Tanya, who's going to wrap things up. Thanks, Victoria. And thanks again to all our guests on today's episode. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Whether it's your first time with us or you've tuned in before, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite platforms and you won't miss an episode. Now, you can listen to previous episodes of Behind the Bonds on moodies.com slash podcasts. The page has links to the print research we've talked about on this episode too. And you can explore other Moody's podcasts there as well. There's plenty to enjoy. I hope you'll join us again next month when we'll be taking a closer look at the real estate sector. It's another defensive sector, but how are its foundations holding up? Our experts will be here to share their insights. Until then, it's goodbye from me and everyone else here at Behind the Bonds. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.